0: If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, I want us to consider today the doctrine of election, um, the doctrine of election. So we'll read in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Amen. So yeah, we've been working through the the book of Ephesians, and um, the time before we had just been talking about how God has poured out richly all these spiritual blessings upon the believer in Christ. It's a package deal. You get Christ. You're in him, you're united to him, you get every conceivable spiritual blessing that's imaginable in him. And Paul goes on here in verse 4 saying, just as. So obviously there's a connection to that that previous thought. And the idea is, why? why? How is it that you, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, how is it that you have come in to all of this richness and all of this... Uh, fullness of Christ and belonging to him and being adopted into the family of God? Why Why you? And it's an important question to consider because the Bible actually considers it repeatedly and God has much to say about it. So we're going to look at that today. Uh, but why are, why, why are you a Christian? And you could say something like, well, because I believed or because he or she believed. That's why they're a Christian. But the Bible says, no, you've got you've to go back before that. It's not just because they've believed. Paul does not even start with Christ and not even this world, but he goes back before the creation even, the reason why, um, to the days of eternity, back into the heart and mind of God. He's saying there's, there's something that goes back before then as to the reason why you are what you are if you are a Christian. And that that reason is in the heart and mind of God the Father. That's what this verse says. Just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So the Bible says, the Christian, you're saved and you're enjoying the blessings of God because God has chosen you. That that is the reason. God has chosen you. How does anyone get out of the mess of sin and of the ruin and of all the misery of the fall? Is because God has freely chosen to save sinners and draw people to Himself, and so the great emphasis of this verse obviously is this verb that God chose, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and the verse or the the Greek word is eklego. Ek means out of or out, and lego means to select or choose. So it's the out choosing, it's the out selection. Um, if you remember in Luke when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees uh, picking the high places at the table, the seats of honor, that's the same word. They were picking them out. They were picking out, that's my seat. I want the place of honor. I want to be in the important spot on the table here. Same exact word. And so this fact that God chooses some men uh, is not argued among Bible believers. I mean, it's really, its if you're an evangelical, whether you're more Armenian in your theology or Calvinistic, uh, the fact that God chooses is not disputed because the Bible repeatedly says it. The reason why is disputed. Um, so there's kind of two main views. The first view is this, that people are chosen by God out of his own good pleasure and will, apart from any reason in us, yea, even in spite of us. So that's the first view. The, the reason is entirely in God, his his nature, his love, his will. Uh, and the second view is that people are chosen by God because God looked ahead of time and saw that they were going to choose God. That's the reason why God chose those people. He looked ahead of time, saw that those, uh, those people who were going to choose him of their own free will and selected those people. And so really you have to pick one of the two views. You can't they're, they're illogically inconsistent. You can't hold both of those views, um, so you, you must pick one. And so that's the question, is what is the biblical view? Uh, before we look at that, though, just some general considerations are this. Uh, how should we come before this doctrine of election? And first off, I'd say this. We should come with the right spirit, um, there have been things that have been said in church history that have, should have never been said on both sides of the view. I mean, things like that that God is worse than the devil. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible thing to say uh, about someone else's view. Uh, not argumentative, not heated, um, but as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, on our knees. Um, that's how you should approach it. When you're dealing with the deep things of God, how should we approach it? We should approach it humbly. Right, we should approach it willing to let God be God. You should approach it, Lord. I want to know whatever the Bible says, whatever the Scripture says. I want to believe it. I want to obey it. I want to follow it. I want to know it, uh, but not holding on to prior philosophies that you might have had that could be wrong. You know, not you know. Whenever I first encountered this doctrine, you know what I found was when I would argue with people, they were coming to me with Scripture. And I was coming back to them with philosophy, well, that can 't be true because you know then that would mean this, you know, but there was no scripture I was, there was no scripture coming back at it. you know they had the scripture um, you know i've heard people say things like this i I would never worship a god like that i 've heard that more than once in talking about these things. Charles mentioned the one time of uh, the woman that was trying to share this with someone else, and all she did was read romans nine and said, well, that's your interpretation, you know. And she had not given any interpretation. She had just read the verses. Well, that's, that's your interpretation. We should come unjudgmentally. I mean, just realizing that it's not a salvation issue, that there are good men on both sides of un- how they understand the Scripture and that you can still have fellowship with them, you can still love them, you can still respect them, even if they don't see clearly the things that maybe you're now able to see uh, from the Scripture, and this point was from Martin Lloyd-Jones, but we should come experientially. And, you know, that might seem strange. How do you come experientially to something that happened before the foundation of the world? But what he's saying is this. You should come asking the question, why am I different? You know, what, why am I a part of the church? Why am I here and my friends from high school are not or my friends from college or my, my coworkers are not? Um, what's the reason We should come experientially. Is the reason really, was it really something in you or was it God? So that being said, I want to uh, assert one of the views. I'm going to assert the view that God freely chose men out of his own love, out of his own nature and out of his own mysterious will. Uh, That that is the ultimate reason why people are saved. So notice first of all, just this, the Bible never argues about this doctrine. I mean, there's many things in the Bible where there's extensive argument, where Paul's like reasoning and trying to, you know, convince the reader or convince the believer of certain things. But when it comes to election, it just states it as a fact. I mean, it just puts it out there and says, this is the way it is. And he it, it never really argues about it. It just says, yeah, God chose, you know, who is going to be, Elected unto holiness, he chose who was going to be saved. Um, in fact, the Bible actually rebukes you for trying to argue with it. So that's, that's not a very common instance in the Bible where it actually rebukes you for even starting to argue with it. Uh, so let's turn over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and starting in verse 6. So Paul is addressing why is it <clears throat> that it seems like so many of the Jews have rejected the Messiah. Is it, have all the promises of God failed as the word of God failed? And so he's answering this question. <clears throat> verse 6, Paul says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. So he's saying, not everyone that comes from physical Israel is truly spiritual, is true Israel, believers. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was, there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and not, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? there is no injustice with God, is there? so Paul has said this he's made a point he's saying god the normal the normal uh the normal way was that the older would would be have the priority He says nope, I'm going to do it backwards this time. The older will serve the younger. I'm choosing the younger uh brother here that and it was before they'd done anything good or bad. it wasn't based on anything in them, and I'm calling him and through him, all the promises are going to come. And Paul anticipates an argument and say, whoa, that's not fair. That's, God, that's not just God. You can't do that. So Paul brings that, that question up, and what's the answer? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Once again, if you're understanding the verse right, you'll have the question. this, This question, you'll understand the question. He's saying... If God is hardening whom he desires, he's having mercy on whom he desires, uh, how can you find fault, God? And this is the answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So all this to say Paul is dealing with this exact same thought here of God ultimately being the reason why someone is among believers, that they're a Christian, that they're a child of God. And he anticipates these arguments to come back. And the answer given is just this. Who are you? Who are you, O man? You're a man. And not only are you a man, you're a sinful man. And you're going to bring God at the bar of your judgment, you're going to call God into question, and 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 question the Almighty about the way He's running His business, the way He's doing things. So it's a rebuke. I mean, it's saying, it's saying, "Who are you, O man, that you should come before God?" Think of Job. It didn't end very well for Job in accusing God. He said, "I repent in dust." And in ashes. Also, notice this: in the Bible, there are no philosophical explanations. It doesn't. It, the Bible never really fleshes it out. It never really gives you uh, a complete answer on the thing. I mean, think of other things in the Bible. The Bible never fleshes out the Trinity, and yet it's it's the core. I mean, you're talking about the very nature of God, but it's just proclaimed. It's mysterious. It's It's incomprehensible. Think about the incarnation, God, the Son, becoming man, fully man, and fully God. You say, that's 100% and 100%. I don't understand how that fits together. Yeah, neither do I, but it's true. Both of them are true. And just to realize, when you're dealing with God, it should not be surprising that his nature and his ways are incomprehensible. They're, They're beyond finding out. They're past finding out that God is beyond us, and so t- to say that God is sovereign and man is responsible, it's not illogical, but it is incomprehensible. It's beyond. How does it fit? I don't know. Spurgeon said this when someone asked him, how do you reconcile sovereignty and responsibility? He said, I never try and reconcile friends. So I'm, that's a pretty good answer, I guess. They're both, they're both there in the Bible. They're, 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 they're all over the Bible, and they're both equally asserted. If God fits into your box, if God could fit into your mental box of understanding him, you know, and you could perfectly explain everything, that God would not be worthy of your worship. He is beyond. He is infinite. His ways are past finding out. That's what the Bible says about God. And so it shouldn't shock us when you come to some point and you say, wow, I don't know how, how this works. It's, it's past finding out. It's beyond. When you get to those points, you should worship. Right, not complain, not fight, fight against it. So, in, in thinking about this first view that God freely chooses men out of His own good pleasure and will, uh, maybe we could turn over to Second Thessalonians two, in verse thirteen. This doctrine is repeatedly taught in Scripture. Two thirteen, but we should. Always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. From the beginning, God has chosen you. When was the beginning? Well, we know it was before the foundation of the world, as Paul says there in Ephesians 1. Uh, 1 Peter 1.2. Peter an apostle, or maybe sorry verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Elect, chosen according unto the foreknowledge. That God knew, God knew you intimately before the foundation of the world. You know, the people that say that foreknowledge, that's just God knowing facts about you, that's not actually what the Bible's saying. It's saying foreknowing. And in the Bible, knowledge is the idea of intimacy. That God knew before, he knew you beforehand in this intimate way. That he separated you out. Um that he elected you, that he chose you. I mean, think of that. If you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? Because God, before the foundation of the world, think of those of you that have been to Colorado, you've seen the mountains, or you've, seen, you've been to the ocean, you've seen the world, to think that before any of this was, God wasn't thinking about those things. He was thinking about you. I mean, it's incredible. Um, I wanted to share this quote from Spurgeon here. Um in thinking about this this thing of it being before the foundation of the world, this is what Spurgeon said. He said, You know, at first we thought it was Adam, that was the beginning. You know, that was when God chose us. He says, No, you've got to go back, you've got to go back before that. He said, That was not the beginning. For revelation points us to a period before this world was fashioned, to the days when the morning stars were created, when like drops of dew from the fingers of the morning, stars and constellations fell trickling from the hand of God, when by his own lips he launched forth massive burning stars, when with his own hand he sent comets like thunderbolts wandering through the sky to find one day their proper sphere. We go back to years gone by, when the worlds were made and systems fashioned, but we have not even approached the beginning yet, until we go to the time when all the universe slept in the mind of God as yet unborn, until we enter the eternity where God, the creator, lived alone, everything sleeping within him, all creation resting in his mighty, gigantic thought. We have not found the beginning. We may go back, 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 ages upon ages. We may go back if we might use strange words, whole eternities, and yet never could arrive at the beginning. Our wing might be tired. Our imagination would die away. Even if it could move faster than than the lightning's flashing in majesty, power, and speed, it would soon weary itself before it could get to the beginning. But from the beginning, God chose his people. When the unnavigated upper regions of space was yet unfanned by the wing of a single angel, when space was shoreless or else unborn, when universal silence reigned and not a voice or a whisper shocked the solemnity of silence, when there was no being and no motion, and no time, and no one but God himself, alone in his eternity, when without the song of an angel, and without the attendance of even the cherubim, long before the living creatures were born, that God was thinking about you, that God was loving you and planning to save you. I mean, it is, it is staggering if you really start to meditate on it, that God would love you and set you apart before the foundation of the world. Psalm 65, 4, How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts. How blessed, how blessed are you if God has singled you out and drawn you uh, to himself. So what do these things teach us about God? Well, one thing it teaches us is this, that our God is absolutely free. The Bible says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's not bound. He's not bound. He's not he's not at the mercy of man. Well, they did this part of the contract. Now I've got to choose them. That's not choice if that's the way it works. He's free. He does whatever he pleases in the heavens. I mean, do people deserve something from God? Did you deserve to hear the gospel? Did you deserve a chance to be saved? The Bible says no. You didn't deserve anything from God. The only thing you deserved from God was wrath and indignation because of your sin. God's giving people different measures of grace all the time. I mean, if you're, if you're growing up in a Christian home, I mean, God has given you an immense amount of grace. There are children all over, all, all over the world growing up never hearing the name of Jesus. And you're sitting under the truth. You're sitting under loving parents who love you and are sharing the truth with you. I mean, God has given you a lot of grace. And you should not despise it. And you should not think lightly of it. Because there's millions, billions, that are not receiving what you're receiving. And you'll be held responsible for it. He's free. What else should we get from this? God reigns. He's not frustrated. I mean, before I saw this doctrine, I mean, I used to think of God... As being, it's like, yeah, God is is loving, he's good, he's powerful, he's trying to accomplish his purposes in the world, but if man would just come to him, if they would just believe, and I mean, it kind of looks like he's losing. I mean, look, I mean, you know, all these people that are still not believing, you know, he's, he's the frustrated God, Can't can't bring this to pass. He's thwarted by the free will of man, but the Bible says no, no, he's not frustrated, he's not impotent, he's not thwarted by man. The devil's not winning. The future's not in the hands of man and who's going to, quote-unquote, freely come to God of of their own free will. But it's in the hands of God. I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. That's the God of the Bible. He's in control. He's bringing his gospel all over the world. He's saving his people. Not one drop of the blood of Christ is going to fail to accomplish that for which it was intended. So he reigns. What else should we learn? He is merciful. I mean, what the Bible is saying is this, that the whole of humanity has sinned against God. Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam, and we sinned of ourselves. And we all deserve judgment. It would be right if God never sent a Savior, if God condemned the whole world to hell, every angel would applaud God as he cast every human into hell. And, And they would say, Hallelujah, Amen, God is good and God is just. But God is merciful. I mean, he, he is elected to save a vast multitude which no man can number of his own free grace. He's, he's elected to freely give the opposite of what his creatures deserved, and that is mercy. It is mercy that he, would, that he would save, that he would elect it all, is mercy. What else does it show? It shows that he is purposeful, Right? God is not a God that is... It's not some haphazard plan that's been put together that may or may not succeed dependent contingent upon the will of man. That is not the biblical view. The biblical view is that God is a purposeful God, that he's carrying out this plan of salvation, this plan of redemption, that he's, he, he saw the end goal. I want a multitude of sinners saved by my grace, reflecting the image of my Son, enjoying me for, in heaven forever, and he's working out that plan. How am I going to accomplish this plan? And then he did it. He's done it. And it began before the foundation of the world. Chosen by him. The verse there in Ephesians says, just as he chose us in him. He said, I'm going to lump this whole multitude of sinners, and I'm going to lump them together with my son. Chosen in him. Union with Christ. <laughs> I mean, before the world began. I don't even really know what that means, but I just know it says it, that that we were chosen in Christ. Somehow we were being identified with Christ before the world, before we even yet were. What does this teach us about man? Well, it teaches us this, that man is so sinful that none of us would come to God if God had not done this. That there are none that seek after God, there's none that is righteous, no not even one there's none that understands i mean if if God were to leave it up to man, how many of how many people would have been in heaven and the Bible would answer none, there's none that seek after him. that is the sinfulness of man. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. why because men love their sin you would have kept you would have kept loving your sin. You would have kept enjoying it. You would have kept ignoring God if not for the grace of God coming in your life, waking you up, laying hold of you, drawing you to Himself. So, what are the applications here? Well, one, we should worship God the Father. I mean, stand in awe of God, that He's seated upon the throne, that He's sovereign that he's not frustrated, that he reigns, that he's bringing about his purpose. I mean, sometimes you can feel overwhelmed when you look at the world and you see the sin and the evil that's in the world. You can you can start to think in wrong ways. Like, oh, like the, God is losing, or the gospel is losing. That is not the case. God is accomplishing his purposes. I mean, his gospel is going out. It's going to reach everyone that he has elected. What else should we gain from this? Well, if you understand this rightly, it instills humility, yes. uh, going you know, and actually, this is the opposite is accused of this doctrine. If you believe that, you're going to be proud. oh, I'm one of the chosen people, not really. Um, the way that you feel, if you are a child of God, is that it should not have been me. I mean, that's the way you feel. It is a humbling thing, it is a humbling doctrine. It's a humbling doctrine because you begin to realize. Why Why am I a Christian? Back to that question. Why am I different? Why am I here where I am? You know, and before you see this doctrine, I don't care who you are, there is some element of pride because you think, well, I chose to believe. You know, I heard the gospel and I chose to respond. I repented of my sins. There is, there is some element of pride in that. But when you begin to see this doctrine, you begin to see there was nothing in me. Why did I believe? because of God's free mercy and grace because he sought me when I was not seeking him. Why am I different than my friends? Well, it was nothing in me. There was there was literally no reason. There was nothing in me. It was all God. God gets 100% of the credit and 100% of the glory. What else should this doctrine do for us? Well, it should motivate evangelism. Um and again, this is another accusation against the doctrine. If you believe that, then you're not going to evangelize, um, which is not true. I mean, if you look at all the major evangelistic movements, most of them were started by Calvinistic believers. Um, so Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Why, Paul? I mean, why would you endure all these things for the sake of... They're going to be saved anyways. That's not the way the Bible thinks. That's not the way Paul thought. He knew that God uses means to accomplish his ends. I endure all things for the sake of the elect so that they may also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. He's saying, I'll, I'll, I'll suffer I will suffer whatever I have to suffer to get the gospel out that the elect might be saved and that they they might inherit this great salvation. Elections are hope in evangelism. I mean, as Paul Washer used to say, that he could go into the the worst area with the most hard-hearted, rebellious, sinful people, and he could have hope that if he preached the gospel that someone is coming out of there converted. And because the hope lies not in man. It's not in your ability to convince man or reason with man or that they've got to be at a certain point of soft-heartedness before you can talk to them. I mean, that God can save the hardest of hearts because it's dependent upon him and not upon man. And lastly, what else should we gain from this doctrine? Well, it should provide security. Just to realize that you didn't, if you're a Christian... This didn't start with you. It, the beginning of your faith, that didn't start with you. It started with God. And if it started with God, that should give you great hope that it's going to end with God. That God, that he who began a good work, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, that this was not just your your idea, right? Your life, if you're a child of God, you you've been caught up into something bigger, right? You've been caught up into the eternal plan of God. Uh, Maybe we'll end here. Go to Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In these whom he predestined, he also called. In these whom he called, he also justified. In these whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, if you've been called, if you are chosen by God, you are going to be glorified. There's no break in the chain. If you've been called by God, if God has chosen you, he's going to keep working on you. He's going to keep sanctifying you. He's not going to leave you alone. And the end is going to be glory. I mean, it's going to be perfection. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I mean, think of that. He's saying, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to stop this love of God that has its origins before you even existed? So, amen. Lord, we do just thank you for who you are. We thank you for choosing us. We thank you for calling us, saving us in time, and giving us the hope of heaven and and the promise of eternal life just pray that you would encourage us lord help us to help us to meditate on these things to see more and uh, and to give you the glory that is due your name in jesus name amen